Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. They kind of get lost in YouTube. Uh, I don't know if anyone else is like that. But I find myself watching YouTube videos, and a guy I stumbled across recently, his name is Mark Rober. Mark Rober quit his job at NASA to go and make YouTube videos where he basically creates the most ridiculous scientific kind of... Uh, he, he over-sciences a problem uh, and creates something really unique and cool out of it. So one of the things that I, I've seen him do that was just, I don't know, I just loved it, he said, you know what, I've got a problem with squirrels stealing my bird seed in my backyard. So he creates a squirrel obstacle course. And on this obstacle course, they had to jump from you know, one thing to another. And, but you know, it, it had a platform where it would uh, project uh, an image of an acorn. And if they, if they took the bait, it would, uh, they would step on the platform and it would launch them across the yard before they could actually <laughs> get the bird seed. You know? Uh, so I just, you talk about redneck engineering, it's, it's the best thing you've ever seen. Mark got famous with his first video where he actually, uh, he, he engineered a box and he 3D printed it and everything uh, that, you know, it, it looked like a normal package and he printed some graphics on the outside of it that looked like Bluetooth headphones. And so he set this box on the porch uh, where people were having a, a problem with porch theft. And when the thief would walk up and steal the package, he had engineered cameras and everything. Uh, and so they would take it home and they would open up the box. And instead of getting this new set of Bluetooth headphones, they would actually just get sprayed with uh, confetti and, uh, and glitter, uh, which is the worst of all crafting supplies, <laughs> as many of you know. Uh, it just gets everywhere. So, you know, they didn't get what they thought that they were going to get. The truth of the matter is temptation to sin is kind of like that. Temptation to sin is the promise that you're going to get something new, the promise that you're going to get something that you want, but inevitably you just get a face full of uh, confetti or a face full of, uh, you know, stuff that you can't get rid of, right? Temptation to sin uh, never cashes the check that it writes. It, you never get what you actually think you're going to get. And Jesus really teaches us about that uh, in Matthew chapter 4. I, th I think we see that in a variety of ways. And the theology of what Jesus does is just incredible. And we're going we're gonna to look at that and, and try to tie that into our lives. But I, I think that there's some things in this passage that we can very easily miss when we just kind of read it quickly. So before I go any further, let me do this. Let me just pray for us uh, once again, and then we'll get into uh, the rest of the sermon. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this church and my brothers and sisters here and Thank you so much for how your word, again, it reads us and it, it tells us how to live and uh, live life abundantly, not just a list of rules of things not to do, but you tell us how to come into, uh, come into uh, the way of living that brings ultimate contentment and ultimate peace in a way that sin could never do, in a way that disobedience could never do. So help us to be faithful. I pray for my brothers and sisters, as Jamie mentioned earlier, as they go through this uh, transition in the coming months and 
I just pray that your hand would be all over it and you would be very evident as you work. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so before I read the text, a little bit of context. This is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You'll recall Jesus has just been baptized by John. And the baptism of Jesus is a remarkable event. You see all three members of the Trinity there in one place at one time. God the Father declares, you are my son, right? You are the son of God and with whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit descends like a dove. And you see representatives of each member of the Trinity all there at once. And so as Jesus is anointed for ministry, what happens is he gets a nice cushy job there as the high priest in Jerusalem. No, that's, that's not what happens at all. Um, it, what, what he actually, what happens, he gets told to go into the wilderness, into the desert, into a place of, it's, it's really known as being quite desolate and difficult to fast for 40 days. Okay, so the first, uh, the first, instruction as Jesus is about to begin his ministry is to now go into the desert. Um, you know, and, and this is this is honestly, this is very difficult because the desert, when we think about desert, at least when I do, okay, I kind of think about, you know, a bear gorilla style survival. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody watches those shows on uh, history, you know, um, I kind of think about that kind of thing. But that's not really what's going on here. This isn't an episode of Homestead Preppers. All right? This isn't what's going on. Jesus is out there not eating. He, you know, he's, he's fasting and praying for 40 days. And this is a particularly difficult geography. Uh, this would have been the Judean wilderness, that is, a desolate place where you know, the, the types of animals that you're most likely to see are snakes, scorpions, and jackals. Okay? It's not like it's this lush type of place at any, uh, in any way, shape, or form. But even beyond that, in the Jewish mindset, this was a place where there are you know, evil spirits dwelling. The Jews would have known this to be the place where, it's, it's, it's the place where the demons live, okay? This is the place of evil. Uh, this is where bad things happen. Um, this is not around God's house. This is out in the desert away from uh, the dwelling place of God. And so this is the backdrop to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, where we see Jesus' first of three temptations. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So again, Jesus is fasting. Now, something to keep in mind is, Satan has been very interested at this point in Jesus' life from the get-go, from the very beginning of Jesus' life, Satan has been uh, taking notes, present, doing work behind the scenes. I think specifically of the influence of the enemy on Herod. I mean, how else can you explain 
the mass infanticide there in Bethlehem as Herod gives the ruling to kill a bunch of babies. Uh, the influence of the enemy is pervasive throughout the life of ministry and opposition against Jesus uh, for sure. But so far as we know, this is the first time now that Jesus comes face to face with Satan himself. Okay? He appears there in the, the, the desert. Interestingly enough, uh, being tested by God can sometimes come simultaneously with being tempted by Satan, as Jesus demonstrates for us here. And Satan's um, strategy, if you will, is ultimately to disqualify him as the Messiah. Because if the Messiah is going to give in to the temptation, that means that he is not going to be obedient to God. So therefore, he would be disqualified as the Messiah and ultimately the Savior of the world. And he waits until he's already fasted for 40 days. He doesn't show up on day 2 or day 20 or day 30. He shows up at day 40. As is temptation often for us, there is a strategy to it. The enemy that is against us waits till we're most inclined to give in. And notice what Satan does. Satan doesn't show up with a Dairydale cheeseburger and say, hey, eat this. That's not what he says. What he does is he shows up and says, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, it might be translated, since you're the Son of God, since you're the Son of God, why don't you turn those rocks into bread? It's a different sort of temptation. It's very crafty. Because what is it doing? It's saying, we all just heard the Father say that you're the Son of God. Since that's who you are, I'm going to flatter you here and say, why don't you just go ahead and turn those rocks? You have the power to do it. It's manipulative flattery, right? You have the power to do this. And by the way, we know that Jesus did. Matthew makes a point of telling us that later on in his gospel. He says, Jesus turns a couple of loaves and some fish into a, 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 a smorgasbord for thousands. So Jesus clearly has that power. So he's saying, why don't you, why don't you turn those rocks into bread and eat them? So the temptation here is a temptation that isn't uh, a temptation, he's not being enticed to do something that he didn't have the power to do. No, the temptation is to do something that he very well could do, but it wasn't God's will for him to do it. And such is the case for us, I think. You know, we're not tempted to go and do the things that we can't do or that are completely outside of any plausible you know, thought. Of, we, that there's no way we could do them. I think we get tempted in the, in the ways... Uh, that sins surround us and, and are within arm's reach. We can reach out and actually do and commit the sin. I think that that's certainly the case. But those things aren't necessarily within the will of God. And so this first temptation then is concerned with the basic essentials of life. Will the Lord take care of your needs while you're in the wilderness? Will, you, will the Lord take care of you or will you be disobedient by eating? And so if you're like me, when I read this, what I think is, why in the world? Satan is much smarter than I am. 
Why in the world would Satan think that he could get Jesus to do something like this? I think what's going on is that Satan believes that he can win uh, Jesus over to his side. Uh, Satan, if you recall, did not start off as a demon, uh, as an enemy against God. He chose at one point to turn against God, even though he himself had experienced, uh, for, for all practical purposes, what heaven was like. So he knew and is a supernatural being who had turned in rebellion against the Almighty God, Yahweh. And so now he thinks that he can win this other Son of God over to his side by disobeying in the likeness of Satan himself. So there is a sense in which Satan thinks that he can get Jesus, and not just him, by the way. I mean, Satan had done this with a number of uh, demonic forces, you might argue, there in Scripture. So this has been uh, successful in other instances. So would Jesus be like those other demonic forces that have also turned against the Most High? But think about what Matthew is telling us here in terms of who Jesus is and the theology behind this, okay? Why in the world would Jesus fast specifically for 40 days? It's an important number in the Old Testament. 40 days in the wilderness, mind you. Kind of an important picture that's being given to us of Jesus' ministry. 40 days and nights, akin to 40 years in the wilderness, turn these stones into bread, something like, Lord, give us manna so that we can survive. Something like, I'm going to complain about the manna because it's not good enough. Something like the disobedience that even Moses himself ultimately gave into there in the wilderness by not relying on what God had told them to do. So what is, and by the way, when Jesus responds to Satan, what does he do? He quotes the book of the Bible and the chapter of that book that references Israel's disobedience there in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that flows from the mouth of God. So what is Matthew telling us? Where Adam has decided to be tempted by the enemy over and the instructions of God also happened to have something to do with food. Uh, Adam failed. Jesus, the second Adam, would not fail. Where Israel was tempted to disobey the word of God, to not rely on what the Lord has provided, and they failed, the greater Israel would not fail. Where Satan, the supernatural son of God, had decided to turn against God, the greater supernatural Son of God would not do that. Jesus is the second Adam, the greater Israel, and the greatest Son of God. That's what we're being told here in the story of His temptation. There's, there's a tremendous amount of theology that's coming our way here. So let's look at the second temptation, uh, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the, the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
crafty enemy that Satan is. Think about this. Jesus comes back to him with the first temptation with a Scripture passage. Right? You shall live by the words of God, he says. So Satan, in his strategy now, doubles down by using his own Scripture passage. Pretty clever. Very clever. And so as Satan doubles down on these Uh, On this passage, there's a scenery change. There's a movement, possibly visionary. I don't know if there's a literal... Did did Satan somehow uh, uh, take him literally to to Jerusalem? I don't know. Maybe it was visionary. But nevertheless, they now find themselves at the temple. And what we know from Jewish history, when we we think about uh, writers, uh, if this, you know, uh, historians, uh, Jewish historians, I think about Josephus, if that name mean, means anything to you. Um, they talk about the, the descriptions of the temple there at this time. There was a royal portico, and you could walk out to the edge of the portico and look over the side and see the valley down below. And it was so tall, it was said if you were to look out over it, you would actually get dizzy. So this is a, an extremely tall building there in Jerusalem. And so what is the temptation? Well, once again, the, the temptation is not that Satan is going to do the pushing of Jesus off the side of this tall building. No, what does he say? Why don't you jump off the side? And by the way, the Father already said, I'm pleased with you, you're the Son of God, so you, know, you jump off the side and you're not even going to stump your toe on the rocks below. That's not going to be a problem. Why? Because the angels are going to help you and make sure that you don't get hurt. So if you were to do this, Satan says, it will be the greatest display of power that anyone has ever seen. The Romans can't compare to this. No Jewish authority can compare to this. If someone jumps off the side of the building and angels pick him up and don't let him fall to his death, we might be inclined to recognize the power of that man. I mean, truly, you know, truly Superman in every possible way, okay? Um, And so we know, by the way, Matthew chapter, chapter 26, that Jesus could have done this. Jesus says before the crucifixion that he could have called 12 legions of angels to rescue him if he had chosen. So Jesus clearly, again, had the power to, uh, to, to actually do this, what Satan is suggesting. And this, this is a progression too, right? Now Satan first tempts Jesus in his domain, in the wilderness, in the place of his you know, backyard, if you will. And now he takes Jesus to Jerusalem, to the very house of God, and says, well, you're, you know, will God protect you here even in his house? And so the the temptation is for Jesus to display His own power. Psalm 91 is the passage that Satan quotes specifically. Specifically verse 11, For He shall command His angels concerning you to guard you in all of His ways, the psalmist says. Interestingly enough, if Satan were to continue to read Psalm 91, verse 13, two verses after that, specifically mentions that the Messiah is going to crush the head of the serpent. I guess uh, he didn't read the rest of it. Um, but but the, the temptation here, though, the temptation is Satan is going to twist and manipulate God's Word 
in such a way that, that ultimately it's not just about memorizing Scripture. Jesus has to combat the enemy by understanding exactly what that Scripture says and how it should be interpreted. Otherwise, he would have never been able to thwart this temptation. Jesus interprets the Scripture and realizes that the Messiah is not just about... Catch this and hear me on this. The Messiah is not just about, at least in His first coming, the display of ultimate power to all. The hallmark, the earmark of the Messiah's ministry was not to come in pomp and circumstance but rather obedience and submission to God's plan for the redemption of the world. The problem is the Father had already declared that Jesus was the Son of God at Jesus' baptism. And Jesus would prove it at the cross. Not some display of power, not some shining steed, not a golden crown. Instead, a display of humility and obedience. A donkey, a crown of thorns. And Jesus refused to test God, he refused to go against God's will. That was the earmark of the Messiah. So now let us look at the third temptation, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Last time I was with you, I talked about the gates of hell and the area of Caesarea Philippi at the, the, the foothills of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon being known as the dwelling place of the false gods there in that culture. So, Satan takes Jesus, before Jesus ever does any of that that I mentioned before, Satan takes Jesus to the top of that mountain, the highest mountain in Israel, where you could see the farthest into the country. The, the place where the Jews would have thought uh, that the enemy lived. And here, Satan is going to now do this. He's going to say, I will give you at the beginning of your ministry, exactly what you came to do. What, what did Jesus, what, why, why did He come? To issue in the kingdom of God. To institute the kingdom of God. And so Satan says, here's the keys to the kingdom. I'm the prince, the ruler of the world, the prince of the air. I own it all because of sin and death now. I will give it to you. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to endure the persecution and ridicule that you're going to deal with over the next few years. You don't have to deal with any of that other stuff. Here, this is why you came. You can have it. So just one catch. And that catch is that Jesus would have to submit to Satan himself. Obviously, this is a very dangerous proposition. Because on the face of it, it seems like the end result, Jesus taking the keys to the kingdom, is a good thing. But the means are what is problematic. Submitting as the Messiah to Satan basically makes his status as the Savior, as the Messiah, null and void. 
So uh, I think one of the things that we often do when we read stories like this and talk about temptation is we think about temptation only in terms of being tempted towards some great moral failure. Um, You know, many of us think about pastors and their fall from grace and the terrible things that occur when pastors give themselves over to sin and it becomes public and and it's a disgraceful sort of thing. Um, And we think about temptation only in terms of the big sins. But the temptation that we see in Jesus' life gives us a model and a pattern that I think helps us to deal with all manner of sin, all manner of temptation, big or small or in between. And and so as I think about a couple of just application points here, one is which the echoes of Jesus' experience here at the beginning of His ministry come through through all of His ministry and all of His teaching. I'll give you an example. When Jesus, just two chapters later, teaches His disciples how to pray, what does He teach them? Listen, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Calls back to two chapters previous. The Lord is saying, do not be tempted. In your prayer, prayer is spiritual warfare, not just because it's an an act of reliance on God, but it is also an act of defiance against the enemy. We say we refuse to rely on any of the enemy's offers. We will rely on God. It is truly an act of warfare in that way. And then when I think about how this temptation works. Temptation, it almost always follows the same pattern of some sort. Here's, here's how sin kind of works. At least it's true in my life. I'm sure it's true in your life. Um, you know, I, I'm a sinner. I get tempted by sin. Um, you know, I, I failed. Jesus succeeded. But this is how the pattern of temptation works. It always goes something like this. That thing right there, within arm's reach often, that thing, that sin, is somehow going to give me something that is better or going to give me some sort of satisfaction or contentment or pleasure that is better than God's will for my life. Whatever whatever the sin is, that sin, the temptation says, this thing is going to somehow be better for me, maybe short term, maybe long term, whatever it looks like, I get fixated on the good that that sin will bring me. In Jesus' case, the display of power. In Jesus' case, the bread to eat when He's hungry. In Jesus' case, the keys to the kingdom that He came to take anyway. So the sin promises that we're going to get those things, the things that we want, in a way that's contrary to the will of God. And it always works like this. It's as old as Adam. Here, eat this fruit and you will be like God. You know, 
just eat a little more steak because it's going to taste good. It doesn't matter that you're full. It's okay to gossip because people will like you more because you've got the dirt. Just give in on that homosexuality issue because you'll reach more people for Jesus if you do. It, just, it will be better if you give in, and that's going to give you contentment. But here's how you combat that temptation every time, as Jesus does. He recognizes, first and foremost, that resisting temptation is always about knowing and affirming that the Lord's will will always produce more satisfaction, contentment, pleasure, and joy in life than anything that that sin will offer you. That's how you resist temptation, is by recognizing that God's will is better for you. And not just because He's told you it and I'm going to follow it, uh, you know, I'm just going to do it because it's a list of rules or something like that. No, it actually makes my life better and is, there's so much more joy to be found in serving the Lord faithfully than whatever that sin is going to give me in the here and now. And in ministry, as your church thinks about all of the transitions that are to come, let me be very clear. Whatever decisions that your church makes, that FCC makes, whatever decisions that you make about how you're going to reach the next generation for Christ and the culture around you, as Jesus shows us here, the ends do not justify the means. At the end of the day, God cares that you reach the nations, that you reach South Boston, Halifax County, but He also cares how you do it. It's not just the end, it's the how. In ministry, I've been around long enough to know this, and you know, I don't have the experience that Pastor Dane does, but I've been around long enough to know that there is an incredible temptation for preachers, elders, pastors, deacons, book writers, scholars, personalities, conference speakers, musicians, and so on, to care more about building their own applause and fame and platform and whatever it may be, to show their own abilities so that they can show their own greatness, so that they can win applause from other people, to, to ultimately have feathers in their cap, and then they say it's for building the kingdom, but it's really about building up themselves. I know that that temptation exists. We live in a church culture of consumerism, and it produces pastors that like, the, uh, that like consumers, you know, that, that like the attention, that like the spotlight. And so as you think about this, as you think about what ministry looks like, I think what Jesus teaches us, that it's not so much about demonstrating our own abilities. Even on a personal level, as we try to win people to Jesus, it's not so much about showing them how good and great we are, about showing our own abilities, our own greatness. It's always about showing our own obedience and faithfulness to the will of God. And that is truly what Jesus models for us. Jesus models for us a surrender to God's will. A surrender to God's will. My Sunday school teacher turned um, missionary. He's on the mission field now in uh, Mexico. He always said this. He said, 
Over the course of human history, the church produced incredible cathedrals, stained glass, and magisterial architecture to display the glories of the church. And certainly all of this has its place because of, it shows the creative genius of those made in the image of God. But when it comes to the Christian life, obedient and humble servants display the glory of Christ better than any magisterial building. Amen? And so let me kind of conclude on this note. Uh, Dr. Michael Wilkins um, gives this summary of Jesus' temptation. He says, Jesus resisted the devil and the power of the Spirit through the guidance of the Word to accomplish the will of God. He didn't fall for the devil's traps. Why? Because he recognized that he was fully reliant on the Spirit of God. Not in our own power, but the Spirit of God. How? Through the Word of God. Not just knowing the Word. It's not just about as much as I love uh, programs like Awana and you know, a number of different programs where you, you do uh, memory uh, you know, you learn passages of Scripture by memory and all of that. It's not just knowing Scripture, but knowing how Scripture can be twisted and not letting that be twisted in your life and in your church. So through the Word of God, specifically to accomplish God's will. And if we find ourselves as a church or as individuals, as families, whatever, whatever it may be, if we're tempted in the heat of the temptation, the temptation is always overcome by asking this question, is this the will of God for my life? Because if it is, then that is inherently better and more satisfying and brings more joy and more contentment than anything that that sin will ever bring. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Again, thank you for what you've given to us. You've given us the opportunity to play a part in your mission to reach the nations. And you've given FCC an opportunity to play the role of reaching Halifax County and South Boston. Thank you that you don't leave us without a purpose and without a mission in life. Thank you that you put this church on mission to do that. I pray, God, that you would uh, use them to bear fruit. I pray, God, that you would help us not to take our eyes off of that mission and be tempted and allured into uh, some other sort of skewed sense of ministry that is not about the faithfulness of the flock to the shepherd and is more about uh, building up people's own power and displaying power and abilities and other things like that. May it be about you. May it be about only you. May this church have the good discernment moving forward uh, to, to know how to make it all about you. And I pray individually, Lord, that those that hear my voice right now, that hear this prayer, uh, that they would not be tempted by the enemy towards sin in a way that renders them ineffective for the mission that you've given them in whatever spheres of influence that they have. I pray that in their interactions and in their relationships and in their experiences, I pray that they would take the gospel and they would model obedience to you, submission to you, surrender to you. And that would be what draws this generation to you and to your church. We love you, Jesus. Uh, we just love you. And we thank you uh, in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, 
God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.